Uh, Saul doesn't become the king in, in chapter 9, but he is set apart. Uh, God uses Samuel to uh, identify him. And we're actually going to split chapter 9 up into two different segments. We're going to be talking about um, tonight, part 1 uh, is all about spiritual leadership. And part 2 of spiritual leadership we'll, we'll be talking about next week. So throughout tonight, um, it's all about guiding ourselves or, or seeing what God is expecting in spiritual leaders. And so I know a lot of people don't view themselves as spiritual leaders, and a lot of people come in and they hear messages and they think, oh, I just I need something to refresh me. I'm having a hard time right now, and uh, I do believe God will speak to you in, in the ways that you need to be refreshed. But he also uh, might have a calling on your life that, that you're unaware of. You see, the basic calling for every Christian is self-denial. Uh, and leadership, that is the, the core of leadership, that we are selfless, that we deny ourselves for the sake of others, for the sake of a greater cause. And Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and to follow him, to fall in love with him. But we don't sit in a place of just um, nonstop enjoying God, just me and him, and then everyone else does their own thing. We're not worried about it. Maturity in Christ is that as we fall in love with him, we are doing that by obeying his commands. And we see in the New Testament alone, 50 to 70 uh, one another commands to love one another, to encourage one another. That means you got to be around other people uh, to be practicing the one another's, but it's the heart of God. For him uh, and you to be in a love relationship means that you're in a love relationship with his people and with those around you. And so some he calls to specific areas of leadership, but for all he commands us to not only sacrifice for others, but to be disciple makers. And these aren't things that we go from one to the next to the next to the next, and uh, years are in between. These are all things that can happen at the same time or synonymously. We can uh, be falling in love with Jesus and find ourselves um, leading others spiritually. So it's true that not everybody has specific gifts uh, for leadership. Uh, more than likely in this room, there's some that do and some that don't. But all of us as Christians are called to some degree of spiritual leadership. Um, lots of different capacities, but as disciple makers, we have influence uh, over some folks in the sense of leading them to Christ. If you've got the Spirit of God in you, and every believer does, then you are a spiritual leader. So my hope tonight, next week, uh, as we Look at these different elements of Saul's life that see what God was looking for in leadership. My, my hope, my prayer is that he calls some of you out uh, in a good way. That he calls you to be grow group leaders, to shepherd a small uh, flock of people. Uh, I pray that he would lead you in other ministries, that he would strengthen your leadership ability in the home, whether you're a mom, dad, uh, maybe even just an aunt or uncle, that he would uh, strengthen your ability to make disciples at work, uh, at home, wherever it might be. There is some element of leadership that God's um, going to use you in, and it's going to be powerful. So uh, ask yourself as we walk through this tonight, who is God asking me to lead spiritually? Who is he putting around me? Who Who is he putting me in front of to lead spiritually? And along with that, Am I leading myself well? Am I leading myself well in that? And we'll hit on both of those elements tonight. If you got a Bible, feel free to jump into 1 Samuel 
9, we're going to hit the first 14 verses as we look at spiritual leadership. Verse 1 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bokaroth, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, I'll say that five times fast, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. All right, got a little bit of context here, but let's park right here. The first thing that we see, we'll, we'll go over four things tonight. The first thing that we see in what God is looking for in leaders in the church is that they are faithful in the little. That they are faithful in the little. So, Interesting uh, pieces of information that we get about Saul. One of them right off the top is kind of odd. It says that he was at least a foot taller than everyone else in the land. If you remember back in chapter 8, when the Israelites asked for a king, they were asking for a king like the other nations had. You don't see kings um, or even spiritual leaders in most cases throughout the Old Testament or New Testament mentioned regarding their height. Like that's, not, that's not a normal um, bit of information that we get. But if you see how other kings and other nations throughout the Old Testament are described, whether it be the Philistines or others, height was often mentioned. Um, and so God is literally giving the Israelites exactly what they wanted. You want the tallest guy in the land to rule over you? I'm going to give it to you. Not only that, but you see a little bit, a little bit about Saul's life. So he's uh, the best looking dude around. What an odd thing to say that he's handsome, but he's a handsome guy. He, he's the best-looking dude around. He's the biggest dude around, right? He, he's a rich kid in that uh, we see this lineage of his dad, Kish, who is a wealthy man. And so he, he's, he's a rich kid. Not only that, but we see later here um, shortly when Saul becomes king and he sets out commanders over the military. One of the commanders is his son, Jonathan. And there's not a big time period that that is from him being um, elected king to setting up Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan, as one of the kings. So he is old enough to where he's got at least one adult son. So just put yourself in that position. And then your dad, <laughs> so your middle-aged guy, and your dad is then saying, hey, the donkeys uh, got out. I know you ain't got nothing better going on. Why don't you go get one of the servants, translated in Hebrew, just slave, why don't you go get one of the slaves and go have fun? Now you got, you, I got to believe he's not enjoying this task, right? Because he, he doesn't even quite know at the beginning, even though he would have been familiar with this, he doesn't know what the cost of it's going to be because there's no handbook on wrangling donkeys, right? It, it's just uh, go and find the donkeys. Could take days, could be done immediately. Who knows? So Saul, maybe a little bit of entitlement going on thinking, man, we got other people who could do this. I got other things going on, and you're asking me to do this little task. How do you guys feel when, when people ask you to do uh, menial tasks, trivial tasks, things that you like, you know what, I got better things to do than to run errands. Like, doesn't that frustrate you when people, when people ask you to do some of those things that we don't really want to do? 
But God wants us to take them serious. How many of y'all, when you were younger, um, maybe even recently, you took a keyboarding class? Anybody remember keyboarding back in high school? I uh, I hated keyboarding class. I'm glad I invested in. It. I didn't know. Um, I didn't. I didn't know this whole computer thing was going to take off like it has. So I'm pretty pretty glad that I. Uh, I jumped into keyboarding, but when I was a freshman in high school, and I was in keyboarding class, and I hated it because the teacher would just uh, sit at her desk, and we would all be kind of in a circle with our computers, and we'd have this notebook, and we'd have to go through all these exercises. Remember those exercises, the whole uh, Q, W, E, R, T, Y, like just constant exercises, and a lot of them at the beginning would be just be like two letters, right? So it'd be like A, and then R, and then A, and then D, and you just go two letters at a time, and you'd go over and over and over, and then your screen would just be a bunch of jibber-jabber. Like, you want to feel, uh, <laughs> you, you want to be in a, in, a, in a high schooler's nightmare, sitting keyboarding class, just seeing jibber-jabber on a screen, just more and more and more and more, and it's like, man, this is what, like, nine-month-old babies do when they put their hands on the keyboard. They just get jibber-jabber, and this is what I'm doing for class. Like, surely there's something better to do. But you got to learn those basics. You got to learn one, and then two, one, and then two, one, and two. And then what happens? You know, then you get words. You're like, okay, words, a little bit better, still boring, still ridiculously boring. And then you get sentences. You know, okay, I got to put some sentences together. Then you get paragraphs. Then you find yourself typing up entire stories. Now, from the beginning, all you and I care about are writing stories, right? But if you don't learn the basics, then the rest of the story is all messed up. And, and it's not super effective, and it's not super clear. And that's what it's like with God when it comes to the little things. If you don't care about the little things, you're going to have a hard time being a good spiritual leader. And whatever capacity God has you in, and whatever influence he has you in, it's going to be hard because God cares about the little things. I remember uh, a few years ago when we uh, were in Utah and we needed to have like an all-church meeting because we had big decisions to be made. And, and I was thinking about them all week long and I was excited for this meeting. But it was right after a worship service on a Sunday morning. And I told them, uh, we, we just called them huddles. And so instead of having a, a special meeting at night or something, we'd just have people stay after the, the worship service and we'd knock out a little bit of information uh, or decision-making in, in 15, 20 minutes. So I told them at the beginning of this, thinking about all we needed to talk about, I said, listen, I know you guys are hungry, you're tired. This will only be like 15 minutes, maybe even 10. We can knock it out quick, but probably just 15 minutes. And I remember we got into it and we were talking back and forth about these important decisions in the church. And I remember one of the ladies, um, she was she's kind of a motherly figure to me. She raised her hand a little bit in and she said, I thought you said this was only going to take 15 minutes. And I was kind of caught off guard like, who, what? We're like, what? What does it matter? And I said, how long, how long has it been? She said, it's been 50 minutes. And I was like, oh. And so I wrapped it up. And then middle of the week, I had a couple people come talk to me. Hey, man, if you say 15 minutes, it's got to be 15 minutes. I'm like, who really cares about 15 minutes? And they say, that's not the first time you've done it. And I had multiple conversations about how I had said over and over 15 minutes, and it's not going to be 15 minutes. Nobody came talking about the big decisions that we had on our plates to talk about. Like, they wanted to talk about how I said 15 minutes, and it wasn't 15 minutes. And God taught me a lesson. He said, Ryan, people aren't going to trust you or care about what you got to say if they don't see you as faithful in the little things. If you say 15 minutes, 
It better be 15 minutes. But as a young pup in ministry, I just want the big picture. I just want the big stuff. And God says, I care about the little stuff. You know, Saul, (laughs) not only is he having to do this menial task of going and finding these donkeys, but the second he gets over some hill, you know him and his servant could be like, eh, didn't find them. Let's sit down and take a nap. Like most of his work is going to be done in private. And we're going to see here in a few verses, they go from place to place to place. He could just go around the bend, come back and tell his dad, didn't find him, sitting under a shade tree all day. Most of the time we have little things going on, it's behind the scenes, isn't it? Stuff that only God knows about. How do you do with those things? How do you do with the little things that God's asking you to do right now that nobody else knows about? Everything from discipline in your relationship with him to the little tasks he's given you. Let me ask you, when it comes to your relationship with other people, does your word mean anything? And if you make a promise to your kids, to your friends, is your yes, yes, is your no, no? Do you find yourself habitually forgetting things? You told someone you were going to do this, and then you didn't do it until they ask you about it next time they see you. And you're like, oh, totally forgot. And, and, and you play it off like I had other things going on, right? Which means I have more important things than whatever you thought was important. Which to them is a slap in the face. But to God, he's sitting back saying, it's a bigger slap in the face than me. How do you do with those things? Of course, it's no secret uh, when it comes to young leaders in particular, we all want to lead from out front, right? We all want to be on the stage. We want um, we want to make the biggest impact possible. And, and God's saying, I want you to be faithful behind the scenes before I even give you the opportunity to be faithful w- with more. We're an entire generation uh, of people uh, who care more about what the next step is in front of us than what God has put on our plate. Why? Because what God's put on our plate right now, let's be honest, maybe it's just not that exciting. It's been done before. It's it's not that great. And so the idea of what is next is exciting. It's thrilling. It's like, man, there's something new around the bend. And God's saying, why would I give you something new when you're not faithful with the little stuff I've given before you? You look at some of your lives, some of our lives, Some of us don't feel like we've heard from God in a long time, and and we've been asking big questions about life, about the next steps for us. And he's saying, you know what, I've been speaking over and over and over again about the small things six months ago that you didn't want to do. Why would I tell you about the big stuff you think is important now? In the kingdom, the truth is there's no little stuff, right? It's all big stuff for God. Of course, in uh, Luke chapter 16, Jesus says in, in one of his parables of um, a dishonest manager who got himself in trouble, he says in verse 10, those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much. And those who are faithful with much will be faithful with even more and vice versa. Three chapters later, he gives another parable in Luke 19, and he's talking about the ten minas, and those who were given a little bit and expected those things to grow. 
And he takes it one step further in this parable, and he says, those who are faithful with a little will be given more. But those who are unfaithful with a little, even the little bit that they had will be taken from them. There's a principle that Jesus emphasizes at least a couple times in his ministry. Think about it. You look at Jesus' life. What do you think about when you think of Jesus' life? You think of his ministry, right? And this is what the Gospels are all about. Four books all about his ministry. But how long was his ministry? Just three years. Just three years. How long did he live? Over 30. So literally ten times the length of his ministry is spent behind the scenes being faithful in the little stuff. The little stuff that don't even make it into the Bible. The little stuff that's not even recorded. And God's saying, I gave him three years of fruitful ministry, my son on earth, because I saw 20 plus years of faithful ministry behind the scenes. You think about what it would be like to be Jesus, knowing he is fully God, and yet he has taken on uh, flesh as a man, and he's living with brothers and sisters who are flawed, with parents who he's honoring, but they're flawed, and everyone around him, he could, he could stand up and say, you know what, enough. But he humbly submits and serves and is faithful in the little stuff. And he holds his tongue and he walks through it as he learns to be a man. I think to the father, those 20 plus years are as important as the three years we think about. How do you do with the little? Good leaders are faithful in the little. Verse 4 says, and he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Seems like an uneventful verse, but there's something we can draw from this. The second thing we see is that good leaders, spiritual leaders, have a shepherd's heart. They got a shepherd's heart. So, Saul is sent to do this little task, and he doesn't do what I probably would have done, just hang out around the bend, but he goes on and on and on and on. Each one of these locations being roughly 20 miles from his home. So if you think he's going to one, then he goes to the other, and then he goes to the other, he's probably going over a three-day period. Most scholars believe each break in that verse is a day. He's probably going 40 to 60 miles with his servant looking around for this donkey. Now, not super great at finding donkeys, obviously, but the old boy can pursue. He's showing he's got a shepherd's heart. First two out of three kings that we have in the Israelites' nation, in, the, in, the, in Israel as a nation, are both shepherds. Saul, and then you see David. Some of the best spiritual leaders that we've ever had, whether it be Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses, are all what growing up? Shepherds. They're all shepherds. It's no coincidence, right? That they learn to care for animals, and God then put them in charge of his people. You see, this is where the church um, and the kingdom of God is much different than the business world, than the secular world. You see, the goal 
in the secular world is to climb the ladder. And so we use people to get to an end goal or an end game, right? But the church is completely different in that people are the end goal. People are the end game. Like serving them, loving them is what it's all about. There's no using them to get to something better. There's denying ourselves to serve them better. And so leaders have to love people. You see, what does it look like to have a shepherd's heart? Shepherds fight for their people, for their flocks, for their animals, whatever they're shepherding. They fight for them. They care about their growth. They encourage them when they need to be encouraged. They challenge them when they need to be challenged. They move them when they need to be moved. They hold them back when they need to be held back. They pursue them when they're lost. It's much more than just a position. It's a heart. It's a heart. I joke uh, on a fairly regular basis, probably shouldn't, but I joke about how much I enjoy weddings, right? Not, not a huge fan of doing weddings, which is true. But now we're in wedding season. I've been doing a bunch of premarital counseling. I usually always do it at night, and so it's a, it's a night that I'm away from my family. Um, it's just something we do. I wouldn't change it, though. With the exception of doing it at night, I do it during the day. But I wouldn't change doing weddings. Because the truth is, is we've gone from 200 to 300 to 400 people. I'm having less and less interaction with the church. Because I can't interact with everybody. But my heart is, I want to I I be amongst the people. I want to shepherd the people. I want to love the people. I want to be with people. And I know the truth is that the three or four sessions I get in premarital counseling with people confined in that little room might just be my greatest opportunity to love them and pursue them and pour into them that I'm ever going to have. And so every time I go in to those meetings, I have that in the back of my mind. Don't just get past it. Don't just get home as quick as you can. Pour into them. Pour into them, love them. This is the opportunity you have been waiting for. You've been praying for this. There's a lot of leaders in the world. There's a lot of managers in the world. But are there a lot of shepherds in the world? You see, a shepherd is not just a leader or a manager, but it's both. And what separates a shepherd from anything else is that it takes ownership over the flock, has passion to lead this flock, bears the weight of accountability over a group of people. And God is, God is asking some people to step up as shepherds. You see, all throughout our country, though, and there's a whole bunch of homes that are shepherdless. Homes that are, are marked by Moms and dads that are spiritually apathetic, that at best uh, hope the church will raise their kids with the 45 minutes they got on a Sunday morning in kids' church or youth group. Homes that, that are marked with, at best, uh, the fences of keeping their kids contained and damage control just to get them to 18 so they can go off and make their own life. Just don't screw up too much before that. 
instead of the, the patience and the gentleness and uh, the ridiculous investment needed to shepherd their children and to pour into them and to love them. We've made discipline the greatest, the peak in, in the life of parenting. And God's saying, I want parents who are going to invest. They're going to communicate with their kids. They're not just going to set up parameters and boundaries, but they're going to go all in. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be ridiculously hard. And God's saying, I need shepherds in the home. I need fathers who are shepherds. I need mamas who are shepherds. But it runs rampant to have a shepherdless home in our country. You see, shepherdless ministries, you wouldn't think that many ministries would be shepherdless because they got decent folks leading them, right? Whether male or female. But we got shepherdless ministries all over. Ministries that are led by men or women who are marked more by the limits and the boundaries they put on um, their service to the saints than their heart and desire to do whatever it takes to reach whoever they can. People who look at ministry as more of a job and a 40-hour-a-week gig than a group of people they're called to lay their life down for. Marked by, by folks who are known more for their frustration of the flock than their patience and their love and their embrace of the process of discipleship. Because you know when you jump in and you're going to be a shepherd to anyone, whether it's a coworker, whether it's in your family, you know the flock, <laughs> they're going to kick you in the gut. They're going to kick you in the shin. They're going to do what people do. It's going to hurt sometimes. And shepherds do whatever it takes to take care of those around them. You often see the difference in disciple makers. And this, this is... Uh, this is general, but a lot of times you see the difference in the way that young folks uh, disciple friends and family compared to um, the generation before them, and a lot of times the difference is a shepherd's heart. You have dinner with an older couple, and, and you'll notice some things a lot of times in the church. You'll see they've walked through life a little bit, and they'll ask questions about you personally. They'll want to know uh, details about your life, how you're doing, how your family's doing. Questions that, that are pointed, and they dig into your life a little bit deeper than maybe you expect. A lot of times, folks my age, we disciple each other, and we're talking about... Uh, objective truth and, and, and hey this is what it's like to follow Jesus and let's do it and whatnot but we can tell those that we disciple look at us and they know whether we really care about them or not like they can tell am I just a pet project for you like did you just we just have coffee for an hour every Tuesday or every Thursday and we do our Bible study and we talk about what we need to change but like do we really actually love each other do we really have a shepherd's heart for one another and God's saying, I want my people to have shepherds' hearts for each other. Why do you, um, why do you pour into people personally? Some do it because they were guilt-tripped into it. 
Some do it because it's their Christian duty, or they've just seen others do it, and they feel like this is what you should do. Do you do it because you love them? Do you do it because you see them, and your heart just goes out for them? There's a part of a shepherd's heart that's just continuously broken. Because there's always going to be folks struggling. There's always going to be folks in need of healing and comfort. Do you feel that? There's hope, though. I don't know that I would call myself a great shepherd right now. I know God has certainly grown me in many areas. When I was a young pup, uh, maybe nine or ten, where we lived in, in Randolph, right over the hill, was several ponds. And an old farmer had cattle out there, and he would let us go fishing there, and he would stalk them with sun perch and bluegill and all these little bitty fish. And I remember one time uh, we went out there, and we had a five-gallon bucket, and we were fishing, and we caught like 80 sun perch. I mean, we caught a ridiculous amount of these little, uh, little fish. And we put them in the bucket, and we didn't know what we were doing, um, so we just went ahead and took them home and, uh, and hid them in the garage for a while. And we're trying to figure out what do we do with, with all these stinking fish. At that point, they weren't stinking. Story didn't end. <laughs> the mayor lived about two blocks away. And I had a paper route. I knew where everyone lived. And, and I knew uh, oftentimes after it would rain that in, in his well-manicured lawn, out by the street, there'd be a little bit of a ditch. He had a little culvert under his driveway, and it would fill up with water, like, I mean, as wide as from there to here, and and maybe, like, even as far as that wall is to where I am. Like, it would fill up with a lot of water. If you didn't know anything about ponds and rivers and whatnot, you'd think, that would be a great place for fish. (laughs) So I poured all 80-plus fish into his little marina, Within like two days, the sun comes up, dries the whole thing up. Uh, There's hope in this story, I promise. Kind of. Dries the whole thing up. I'm on my paper route the next day after it all dried up, and I buzz in, and I'm like, where did all the water go? All these fish are strung out throughout his lawn, rotting in the sun. I mean, and I was like, wow, I didn't know there was that many fish. I mean, they are everywhere. And this is the mayor of the town. And surely he had to know uh, what was going on. But uh, I didn't think much of it. Gave him his paper and went on with life. Eventually, somehow, I don't know what the (laughs) the next time he mowed was like, but somehow all these fish got cleaned up. The good Lord multiplied. I don't know what happened with them. Here's the hope. God (laughs) said. There's, uh, there's a little bit of hope. The hope is, even though I was not a very good shepherd for those fish, uh, God has grown me. He has saved me. He has developed a shepherd's heart in me. And thank God, the end result of this church <laughs> will not be like, you get the point. Some of you are here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, I don't have a shepherd's heart, or maybe not like I thought. And, and the beautiful part is uh, you can develop one. And the way you develop one is to sit under the great shepherd and to experience his love for you 
And as it changes your life, you're going to find that it, it's a little bit easier to reflect it to those that you're around. And so there is hope. And thank God there is growth in this area. Otherwise, y'all would be in trouble, let's be honest. Good, sh- good leaders have a shepherd's heart. Verse 5. Believe it or not, I look forward to telling that story. But once it came out of my mouth, it's like, this is a weird story. I should rehearse stuff like that beforehand. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zoop, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Third thing we see is that good spiritual leaders consider others first. Good spiritual leaders consider others first. So, to some degree, um, we find ourselves like Saul, being a connection between his father and the flock between his father and the lost. We know that Jesus Christ is the only real connection between uh, God and anyone on earth. But we find ourselves reflecting that, as we talked about just a week or two ago. We reflect that. And so here Saul is, uh, probably tired, probably a little bit grumpy. We're going to find out in a couple verses that his food was running low, maybe several days on the road, and he is having no luck, and yet, when asked about what they should do next amongst themselves, he's thinking about his dad. He's thinking about someone else. How many of you have been part of trivial uh, tasks in the past, some that were maybe wild goose chases uh, where you did not want to be doing it, it didn't feel like there was a lot of hope in it, and very quickly you found yourself grumbling, and you found your heart revealed that, man, it's hard to be thinking about others when you find yourself doing stupid stuff. It's hard to have consideration for those around you when you're annoyed. And yet, good spiritual leaders are going to consider others first throughout their ministry. You see, consideration isn't something uh, that I think you're just, um, you're just born with and that it never goes away. I think it's something that's got to be filled up because I think it, it comes from a heart that's overflowing with grace, and that heart is continually refreshed and, and rejuvenated while we abide in Christ daily. And so that's the problem with consideration for others, is that if you find yourself um, spiritually depleted, you're going to find yourself with a lack of consideration for others, right? And so it's a challenge. It's hard. To be a leader. In whatever capacity God might be asking you to lead, it's hard. It's hard to be a parent. It's, it's relentless, is it not? For anyone who is a parent, has been a parent, it is relentless. Your consideration for others seems like it's non-stop. I mean, think about it. Growing up, you remember if you had those big family get-togethers at Thanksgiving, and your mom or your grandma, they'd be in the kitchen. Uh, maybe a couple guys in the house would be helping. And they spend hours putting together this Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe even days before they were preparing dishes. And yet when the time comes to eat it, who was the very last to actually sit down and eat? Was it not the same people who did all of the preparation? You would think they would get a break. Now, you want to know a secret? Those mamas? Deep, deep down, they like it that way. 
they enjoy it. They enjoy serving. You see, kingdom-minded people enjoy having a mentality of service and humility and considering others before themselves. It's not a challenge for people who find themselves abiding in Christ. It's just production. It's just a reflection. God produces that in us. But you know, even though a lack of consideration for others is oftentimes just the fruit, you know something is broken when there's a lack of consideration. Like I've never sat down with a couple that was struggling in marriage or in their relationship and had them just completely um, just excited about the other person's feelings and, and, and looking for new creative ways to serve the other person. Like those conversations don't happen for folks who are struggling. Now, when folks are struggling in a relationship, it's all about them. They sit down and their conversation is all about how their needs aren't getting met and how um, they, they don't feel like the other person is trying as hard as they are trying and it's self-righteousness and it's self-centeredness and it's just selfish. And you sit back and you're like, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I would guess maybe some of your issues come from the fact that y'all are looking out for number one. It's not each other. Like how many times uh, when, when you're discipling folks who lack consideration for others, how, how many times would they see their issues or maybe your own issues if you lack consideration just dissolve if the heartbeat was to wake up and say, how can I serve other people today? Like that's just what I want to do. How can I serve and look out for other people? How can I put myself before I even come into contact with them? How can I put myself in the shoes of those that I know I'm going to see today? to have a, a disposition prior to the encounter. Because you know a lot of times when we lack consideration, we're like, ah, oh, dang, it's after the fact now, and I probably didn't handle that very well. But when you abide in Christ daily, and the gospel is renewing your mind daily, you find yourself considerate of others because you're already filled with his grace throughout the day. And it just happens naturally. It happens. You see ministries, even in the church, you want to hear about a dysfunctional church, um, you, you'll probably find those in the dysfunction talking about their own ministries, talking about how uh, they need more resources, uh, how leaders of various ministries have made those ministries vacuums within the larger body. Well, we just, we need more for the youth. And so the youth person is the fighter for the youth stuff. Well, we need more for the music stuff and we need resources, we need people and they're all about their area. And then you've got the kids and okay, I'm all about the kids. And so then you find little pods of segregation all throughout the church when people don't consider one another. This is how ministries die. This is how churches uh, dissolve. This is how ministries and outreach and mission go stagnant because by design, the church is outward focused. And so if we as leaders are going to lead in any area spiritually, if we lack consideration, we lack mission. We lack mission. There's not going to be disciple making. There's not going to be outreach without consideration for others. And growth is going to be stunted. It's easy, though, isn't it, 
to think if we're doing like 90% uh, of a good job that like it's good, good enough. And so we let our guard down, don't we? Sometimes I feel like uh, I'm just serving all the time and I should be, right? If I'm a leader, I should be serving. And so I spend my day looking for ways to serve people. Uh, I wish I was amazing at it, but I'm a guy um, and just trying to follow Jesus. And so I'm not always amazing at it. And then I go home, whether it be lunch or uh, after work, and I see my wife needs help in the kitchen, and I think to myself, all right, how's she feeling? She's had a hard day, too, and I, I try my best to be considerate of her, to help her out as she um, has her own stresses. And then, of course, just uh, our marriage and talking and communicating, and so you're just constantly giving of yourself. And then little Silas, I know 8 o'clock he's going to be going to bed, but I want to pour into him. I want to spend time with him. And so we're laying on the floor. We're, we're having fun. We're playing cars and all kinds of games and reading books. And you just feel spent. And deep down you're thinking, okay, just keep on being considerate. Just keep on being considerate. But, man, I can tell you almost every night in my house, I look forward. When Silas is down, I look forward to going to the snack cabinet. And getting my snacks. I got my cookies. Right now they're they're fudge graham cookies. I know some of you are breaking a fast, so this is tearing you up, but I'll finish quickly. I got um these fudge graham cookie things that, that are delicious and uh, I've been eating them a lot this week. And especially since I knew I was gonna go on a fast, I ate a lot last night, I'll be honest. And and then we've got these other cookies and um and, and we try to keep the snacks to a minimum at our house. Um and that means that we're gonna fight a lot over them. And last night in particular, I could tell you stories from every night this week, unfortunately. Last night after Silas went to bed, we sat down and Tara was sitting over here and I was sitting here on the couch and we just wanted to relax. And I was actually eating a sandwich because I hadn't had supper yet and she had my cookies. And I saw her eat one and I noticed for sure, like I, was, I was, uh, had my eye on her. And then after she ate the first one, and they're just little tiny cookies and so I figured she's probably going to eat a couple. I took the cookies and I put them underneath the couch um, so that she wouldn't get them. She said, where'd the cookies go? And I said, you don't need them anymore. They're not for you. And she looked at me with anger, <laughs> with rage, with disappointment, with all of the worst emotions flowing out of her eyes. I could, I, in her soul, I could tell she was so disappointed in my decision uh, of not considering her feelings. I gave her one more cookie, and then I ate the rest. <laughs> she, <laughs> there were six, and I gave her one more. I know it's silly, but you can have a day of wonderful ministry, considering others, and, and you find yourself um, letting your guard down and being inconsiderate. And when it comes to serving other people, you can discredit an entire ministry when you pick and choose what you want to be considerate of. You see, if you're going to be considerate of other people, and that's what good leaders do, You've got to stay plugged in to the Father. That's why leaders have to be self-feeders. Because you can't lead someone past where you are, and you're not going to be moving forward in spiritual growth if you're not continuously plugged into the Father. If you're not finding yourself uh, spending time with Him and depending and relying on Him and trusting Him throughout the day. You see, people who need refreshment themselves are generally not looking to refresh other people. And so you know if you're struggling in whatever leadership capacity God has given you right now, you're struggling to love other people, to serve other people. It, it might be because you didn't learn along the way that you got to be a self-feeder. 
I wish that we all had leaders who led other leaders, but sometimes when it comes to just being amongst other believers, you might be, for lack of better terms, at the top of the food chain. But regardless, do you know how to be fed outside of a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning? Because to lead, you've got to be able to feed yourself. You've got to be able to open the Word of God and jump in. It takes time. It takes discipline. But it's important. All right. One last one. We'll read the rest of these verses here to get us midway through the chapter. This is good. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul, so keep in mind, this is the servant was talking before. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. So they're talking about Samuel, the prophet in the land. What do we have? Verse 8. The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. That's not very much. And I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. So just a quick uh, text critique here. If this is added in, this was added later, or this book was written, um, could have been dozens of years, could have been hundreds of years after these events took place. Remember, most of the Old Testament was uh, orally passed down through tradition and, and then um, and then put into words at some point or put into letters. It's formerly called a seer. Verse 10, And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? So normally this would be right before sundown, about 6 p.m., and uh, the young women would not talk to men uh, at this point unless they were in desperate need of help. And so it shows um, that things were rough for them if they were all chatting together. It was just a social custom. Verse 12 and 13 say, They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. Remember, Samuel had built uh, an altar to God on the high place, and so he's coming back to offer a sacrifice there. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. And then verse 14. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Last but not least, good spiritual leaders seek God's will. They seek God's will. So Saul, he's at a crossroads. He's tired, he's hungry, doesn't want to be doing what he's doing, looking for these donkeys. And now, in the hard time, he's going to call on God, right? That's the wonderful part of the story. This is going to be amazing. Saul's not the one who calls to go see the seer, to go see the prophet. It's the servant. Saul's doing pretty good up until now. 
But the dude is spiritually inept. He doesn't even know how to call on God when times are hard. He's at a crossroads in life. He's thinking of his dad. Things are going good. And yet here he is, not even thinking about God. And this old boy, the servant's like, hey, right up here, just a little bit away. This is about five miles from Saul's home. So Saul's so spiritually inept, doesn't even know much about Samuel. Doesn't even know how to communicate with him. He's trying to bring money to get something from him. You see a couple times in the book of Kings where money was offered to prophets for them to talk, and they, they declined it. They don't want it. But prophets in other lands, amongst other religions, that would be a primary way of getting what you want, right? And so he doesn't know what to do, and this servant is having to spiritually guide him and how to go see a spiritual leader. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Let me ask you, are you Saul or are you the servant? Because up until now, they've both been doing the exact same thing, faithful in the same little things, being considerate of others. They've both put in the hard work. They got a shepherd's heart. They're going after these donkeys. And then, boom, God reveals one of them spiritually not in tune with me, doesn't really care. The other one is. The servant is. Which one are you? You see, because I think our country is full of decent people. Decent people who have learned the basics of morality and are doing a pretty decent job in their homes. Doing a pretty, from an outside view, doing a pretty good job in their leadership positions. And yet, it's the servant having to tell the future king how to seek God's will. And isn't that true? For many of us in the church, many of us in our homes, is that we look like we got the basics down, but we're not actually leading spiritually. How many of us as parents ha have shared verbally the gospel with our kids? Who have helped them to sit in front of the throne of God and say, we could talk to them. Let me pray over you. Let me pray with you. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Like you, you got, you've done everything right. You took them to church. You, you've been making money and you've got a, a roof over their house. You've been doing everything and yet you failed in the most important thing that God asks. Isn't that sad? But it's not over. You see, Saul, as inept as he is, still follows his servant still goes to seek God's will. And that's the beauty. Because you might be here tonight thinking, you know what? Maybe I have not been a spiritual leader over the things and, and some of the people that God has put around me. But am I teachable? Am I submissive? Because God's not through with me. God's not through with me. I believe that, and I've said it before, but it's nights like tonight, it's groups of people like this group of people that when they hear the word of God and the spirit of God convicts them and grabs their heart and draws them in, that those who respond in obedience are world changers. I don't expect anything less than that kind of encounter with God. Spiritual leadership is a funny thing. 
countercultural, especially when it's gospel-centered. If you want to make a name for yourself in the secular world, in the business world, you'll do it by thriving on hard work. If you want to be a gospel-centered spiritual leader, you'll be known for resting on a finished work that happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. If you want to be an up-and-comer in the business world, in the secular world as a leader, they're going to want you to be forward-thinking and creative and pointing into the future. God wants men and women who don't recreate the wheel when it comes to the gospel and trust a simple, plain old message that culminated 2,000 years ago on a cross and they point people around them back to that. You see, spiritual leadership can be incredibly complicated, but it can also be very simple. In order to be a good spiritual leader, you gotta be a good follower. You gotta be submissive. You gotta seek God's will above all else. If God has put you in a position of authority, it is gonna be a temptation from the devil to make you think maybe you got something going for yourself. Maybe because of that degree or because uh, of whatever you think you have that helped you get that position, maybe you got something to offer. But the kinds of spiritual leaders that God wants are those that he puts in authority because they were faithful in the little things. They developed a shepherd's heart for the people that they're shepherding, that they're considerate of other people, and that above all else, they seek God's will because it's his kingdom and Jesus is the king. And we are the servants. So who are you leading spiritually? And are you leading yourself well? Because you can't lead people past where you are. Let's pray.